From New Orleans, this is Mindset. Psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic interviews the leading lights of America's most fascinating city. Irma Thomas is a New Orleans singer who, over a 50-year career, has frequently been compared to Aretha Franklin and Etta James. Although Irma might not have international celebrity, at home we call her the soul queen of New Orleans. Irma Thomas has been nominated for three Grammy Awards. In 2007, Irma won the Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues. Irma Thomas's life hasn't been a steady climb upward. There have been some low valleys and some high peaks. Whenever you find the time and you want to look at it, there's an actual interview of me with Dick Clark. Oh, really? On YouTube from yep. 19, I want to say 1960, it may be either 65 or 64, 65. Wow. I was only 24 at the time. What did it feel like? <laughs> to me, it's funny. <laughs> the first thing I look at, damn, I was skinny. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all going to do that. Of course, I critique the whole thing, you know. What do you mean, critique it? Well, you, don't, you can't see yourself when you're performing. Mm-hmm. And I was much younger then. I didn't have the experience on stage that I had now. And, and you have these little nervous things you do that you're not aware that you do. And mm-hmm. I noticed there was one when I did... Anyone who knows what love is on the Dick Clark show. But what I was doing back then, you had to lip sync to the records. There was no live recording, and you didn't have a pre-recorded tape to to, to sing to like we can do now. I can go on TV with my pre-recorded music, but I can actually sing along with the music. Well, then you had to lip sync with the record, and I had this thing with my hand. I was keeping time, and I did a subconscious thing. And when I was looking, I said, damn, I was doing that. Did, Did anyone pick it up? My kids did, but I don't think anybody else paid any attention to it. They, did, they wouldn't have paid that much attention to what I was doing as much to what I was singing. Were you ever self-conscious as a young adult? Never. No? But looking back on it, you're saying that you, you, you were a little I was about critiquing that. me because of the way it looked totally, but I've never been self-conscious about anything. It is what it is. It always has been. What a, when, you, when you say it is what it is, what it is when I have learned to... Yeah, earlier in the earlier stages of my career, yeah, I wore wigs and did the, the glamour part of the show business thing. Not because I wanted to, but that was the way you did it. That's what you had yeah. to do to do what you needed to get done. Mm-hmm. But if it was left up to me, it, I never would have worn the wigs. It wouldn't have been any makeup because I can't stand makeup. I wear it because it's a necessary evil. I like the plain old me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so were you always okay with yourself from the beginning, you think? I love what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not what you do, but what I, who how you, I, who, who you, I am. Oh, who yeah. You are. yeah. Where does what can, that come? what can you do about it? Well, <laughs> my I mean, thing is, if you don't like what you see in the mirror, what can you do to change it? Other than your personality, what can you do to change that? You're here sure, now. Sure. You either get fatter or skinnier. The only thing you can change is your mental attitude toward it. Well, I like what I see. Yeah. I mean, not like me all the time, but I like. What I see, so you know. So you you think you had a healthy self esteem from a oh, young age? Oh yeah, yeah. I've always had a pretty good self esteem. I've never been, I've never allowed someone else to make me feel bad about myself. Now, how was how is it that you got in fr- up in front of people throughout, especially the early years when uh-huh. when it's like most people are a little nervous about doing that type uh-huh. of thing? Uh-huh. Put yourself out there and entertained 
um, without being too self-conscious, you think? W w what separates you from the person who doesn't do that? Because when you're the only child in the family and you were pretty much raised after I was age five, I was raised with a bunch of cousins who mm -hmm. used to literally fight. I had to fight every other day just about. Mm -hmm. But that was the way I could get attention and nobody could do it better than I did. So, and so how did you get attention when you were younger? I would get up in front of an audience and sing or recite stuff in church. I've always been the one who volunteered to be the entertainer. Mm -hmm. And, who's and when I wasn't in church or in, at some function in school, I entertained myself. <laughs> By singing and By such? singing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whose attention were you, were you looking for? The large crowd. Well, when you were young, though, who was in close proximity? Well, I, I, in, in terms of my, my aunts and uncles and cousins, that, that was a waste of time. But when I was able to, away from the household situation, mm -hmm. and I was at school, I was the one who was called on to perform most of the time. So. Yeah. And I enjoyed it. When, why do you say it was a waste of time with your, your cousins? Because they were just who they were. They, they, I was the, being an only child, my father used to buy me nice things to wear to school. And of course, living in the country, you didn't wear nice things to school. You wore your overalls and you, mm -hmm. I call them brogan shoes because they, mm -hmm. <laughs> they look like granny boots. I don't know if you remember granny on the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, remember the boots she wore? Well, we literally be... wore those to school in the country okay. because it was the country, you yeah, know. sure. And so uh, they were just envious, typical sibling rivalry type of relatives. And so, But yeah. usually in civil, so sibling rivalry, you're looking for somebody's attention. So was it your own father's attention, or was it like? Well, my your dad aunt wasn't there. My dad and my mom was back in New Orleans. They okay. they uh, they brought me out there because they couldn't find a, a good babysitter in New Orleans who they could trust to not to poison me to death. So they were working in New Orleans, I take <laughs> uh -huh. it, and you were living in 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 Greensburg, Louisiana, with my grandmother before she died. And then after she oh. died, I lived with my my father's sister, who had. I think she had four children when I when I was living out there. Before I moved away, she had others, but she had four at the time when he brought me out there. So what was that like for you, not being near your parents all the time? I adjusted. I mean, like, once again, what do you do? You can't do anything about it. When I got old enough to realize that I didn't like my environment, I gave my dad an ultimatum. <laughs> I told him if he didn't bring me home, I'd, I'd get home by myself, and he knew I would, so he came and got me. How old were you then? <laughs> I was nine at the time. I left my mother in Greens in Leesville, Louisiana. I don't know if you know the distance between New Orleans and Leesville, I Louisiana. Okay, <clears throat> I know you know. Have you heard of Fort Polk, Louisiana? Yes. Where the army base is. Yes, near up. By it's up above Louisiana. Up above, yeah. It's kind of southwest of Alexandria, Louisiana. Yeah. Well, when I was eight years old, my mom and I went to visit her parents, my mm -hmm. grandparents one summer and yeah. I got bored and I told her I wanted to go home and she gave me my ticket and said go and I did and back then you had to catch three buses to get to New Orleans. She gave me my ticket I packed my clothes and I had my, my aunt, uh, her younger sister to bring me to the bus stop and I left. You, I left her in Leesville and, you and were came eight, to New Orleans. So I was eight, eight years, years old. old. Yeah. So, so when she found out about it, when, when she realized I was actually gone mm -hmm. she Went to the neighbors and used their phone and called my dad and told him I was on my way. And my dad called her back and told her I had made it home. So <laughs> it sounds like your parents were a little absent when you were a kid. When you were a kid. Just, I mean, they like weren't they so weren't... much absent. They just, I was just a very adventurous and strong-willed kid. Well, you were only <laughs> eight, though, when your mom let you travel on public transportation to get back. Yeah. 
I was on, on the Greyhound bus. Well, what about... <laughs> and I had to catch three buses because I had to catch the one from Leesville to Alexandria, Louisiana. And then when I yeah. got on the one in Alexandria, Louisiana, I had to come Alexandria to Baton Rouge and from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. So when, why were your parents in New Orleans and you were not living with them? Because at the time they couldn't find a babysitter who they could trust. The one, one time my parents left me, I must have been... Because my dad took me to the country. I was four, maybe four and a half, five years old. Mm-hmm. And they left me with this lady who gave me something to eat, and it made me sick. Oh, okay. And he got very, very upset by that. So rather mm-hmm. than leaving me with someone who he didn't feel yeah. comfortable with, he took me to the country to live with his mother. What was your parents' relationship with each other like? Oh, it was fine. They were a typical black couple, working. Yeah. Strong work. My dad was... At the time, worked for Dabbitt, Bancroft, and Ross Steel Mill. My mom was with the Southern Bell Telephone Company, which is now called AT&T and Bell South or something of that nature. But that's where they both worked. They both had good jobs. And back then, you didn't really, you know, when a child became old enough to be by themselves, you didn't have to worry about kids being home like you do now. Mm -hmm. But I was still a little bit too young at that point to be left at home by myself. So he felt comfortable with taking me to the country to live with his mom until I was old enough to stay by myself. Well, when I got old enough that I felt that I could be by myself, I told him I was ready to come back to the city. And you think those formative years when you were with your cousins, with your grandma, that you started kind of performing, becoming the Irma Thomas performer? Well, I don't know if I was becoming Irma Thomas the performer, but I knew people enjoyed my singing. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not it was good or bad, they always asked me to sing, so it must have been something good about it. Was that one of the main features of your self-esteem, was that you could sing well and you got positive uh, you know, attention not, for that? I don't know if it had anything to do with my self-esteem, but it felt good to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I had, no, I had no negative feelings about it. I enjoyed it. It was, it was not something that I shied away from. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to do it. And we used to have this saying that you're chomping at the bit to do it, you're anxious to do it. Yeah. Well, I was always anxious to be the one to... To be the performer, I enjoyed it that much. I still do. And, and so it's, you never, it's, it's not like you ever questioned it. You said, this is kind of what no, I No, I thought everybody could sing. I just sung more than most folk. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> really, that's how I felt about it. I didn't realize that it never dawned on me to think that it was something that everyone couldn't do. Just folks didn't do it as much as I did because my family in the country, we all sung in in church because we didn't have a choir. It was a congregational type of singing. And when they had special events, all of us did something. We sung or we read some little part or recited some little part or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Even at home when we weren't working in the fields and we were just sitting on the porch chatting, we would... All of us would start singing some familiar song that we'd heard somewhere, and yeah. we'd sing it out. Each would sing it our way. You know, it was just a way of entertaining each other. When did you know that you were different? That it wasn't just you know that you liked singing, but you you liked it way more, and that you were going to do something with it. I never made the decision that I was going to do anything with it. It was made for me. How, <laughs> was, what did that happen with, with Mr. Was it Ridlow or right? No, it no. Was, it happened before Mr. Ridgely came along. Ridgely, that's right. When you get fired for singing on the job, mm-hmm. you either you either must be mighty bad or somebody hates you for whatever reason they hated you. My my situation yeah. was a combination of all of the above. They, 
I was working for seg- for a very segregated-minded boss okay. who uh, didn't want his help, which he had hired, to be singing in the back. They wanted him to be doing what they hired him to do. So yeah. that was one of the jobs I got fired from. The other one was when I was a waitress. I got fired because I wanted to sing with the band more and I wanted to wait on the tables. But it was not a decision that I made because I thought I could make a living at it. It was a decision I made because I was having fun and I was enjoying it. And so when I got fired, Tommy decided that he, he thought my voice was well enough to record. But, of course, when he said that, I looked at him and said, yeah, right. I really didn't believe he was going to, you know, that yeah. I didn't show up because he told me to go, and I didn't go. He came and got me and brought me. And wow. the day that I was there, this lady named Dr. LeBostre had a song. Yeah. And she taught it to me, like, on a Monday, and I was in the recording studio on a Wednesday. But even with all of that going on... It never occurred to me that you could actually make a living doing that. So I went looking for another job. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So what did your dad think about it when you said, uh, hey, he dad, I got one fired? Way, my dad didn't care one way or the other. Because when I got into the business, I was already an, 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 considered an adult. I had children. Right. So he, I was considered an adult. So he was, he was no longer making decisions for me. Okay. But as a kid... When I did school plays yeah. and, and was a participant in school plays, both my parents would be there as moral support because that was their kid up there, and they would be there. And yeah. They didn't make a comment one way or the other. They were just there, and they enjoyed it. So, I mean, I guess they felt like I did. My kid sings. What's the big deal? <laughs> well, what about – but they – you know, you said that they were really hardworking people. They were. And – and then, you know, hardworking people sometimes think that, well, that might be a fantasy to be a singer and to be... I don't think they had an opinion, in all honesty, I don't think my parents formed an opinion about my abilities in terms of of what I was doing. Because in to them, I've always did. I did it at home. I was yeah. always singing and pretending or whatever that we did. You know, we would, we would pretend we were doing the television shows, the neighborhood kids yeah. and I, we would do the television shows we were familiar with. We played cowboys and Indians and all that kind of stuff. So we were always entertaining ourselves. So it never, I guess it never occurred to my dad or my mom that what I was doing was going to someday be something special, not until I actually got into it. And they were just supportive. They didn't pass an opinion pro or con about it. What did they say to you when you you had success as a singer and they saw that you were going to make a living at it? They didn't have an opinion one way or the other because I was an adult when all that happened. Well, but you still had a relationship <laughs> with them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, they enjoyed it, of course, because I would invite them to shows and they would, you know, would come and they enjoy themselves. Now, what their opinion of it was, they never voiced it to me. They never had a negative thing to say to me about it, so I guess they was having a good time, too. Well, when you were young, you said that you kind of performed and you kind of... There was, I got, enjoyed you know, it because I got attention. Because, you know, I got, I got favorable attention. From grandma? From, well, well, my grandmother passed away before I had uh, an, op- an option. She never, she never knew oh. me as the entertainer singer. She passed away when I was five. But when you were a kid, though, oh, okay. So yeah. between five and 18, that's when yeah. you, you Yeah, that's when all this other stuff took yeah. place, yeah. So whose attention were you getting... Anybody who would give it Anyone, to me. Okay. <laughs> so when you when you became you know more of an entertainer later in your like early twenties, let's say, you never wanted your parents' attention for doing that type no, of work. Or were you they getting enough? To come. You were getting when they wanted otherwise. to come, they come. They would come to the show, and when they didn't want to come, they didn't want to come. I wasn't upset by it one way or the other. I'm, you know, the the irony of me is that I've always been independent minded. I mean, mm-hmm. if someone wanted to be a part of what I was doing, good. If they didn't, they were still okay with me. 
Yeah. I think that's the reason why I wound up being married three times, because it didn't matter. He, he did or he didn't. If he didn't, I'd do it for myself. So, you know. I'm going to change gears a little bit. In your songs, uh, I read somewhere that you like to sing uh, stories or about narratives. Um, I like songs that-, that make sense. Okay. Yeah, and I'm still that way. I, it's difficult for me to make a to sing a nonsense song, even if I'm not going to record it. It's difficult for me to just sing it because it's a popular song. If I don't yeah. feel any connection to it or understand the story behind it, it's difficult for me to sing it. What, so I just normally don't do it. What would, in a nutshell, what would, what do you think it, your story would be? <laughs> Never thought about it. <laughs> I've been trying. I've been. You know. Someone's been after me. Several people have been after me to write a book. Mm-hmm. So I've decided it's going to happen eventually because Jane Rams and I are going to get together and she's going to initially start to get this book going and finish. Mm-hmm. But I personally don't, I have, the reason it's probably not written because it's not something that I'm that interested in wanting to put down. I mean, I don't see what's, what's the point. Well, a lot of people seem to think it would be inspirational. Fine, if that's what you think, but. My story isn't any different than Loretta Lynn's story. She was a young mother and had a bunch of kids and lived in the country and, you know. Is that how you think of yourself? <laughs> so, <laughs> what's the big deal? What? That was the way of life in the South, uh, you know, back in those days. I mean, they didn't, they didn't practice birth control. In fact, black people, black women wasn't given it even when it was available. So, I mean, yeah. you lived according to the the situation that you were in and you dealt with it. I mean, you know, I, I'm not a woe is me person. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even though the times weren't always financially great, but I dealt with it the way I knew how I made things work and yeah. I moved on. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have pity parties every other day. And I don't, I very rarely have them now when they, and I have room to do it. I just don't, it's not in my nature. So you, you, do you think that you avoid those kind of feelings? Or? I don't avoid them. I just don't feel a need to do it. Do you ever get sad? or ever get, Sure, I yeah. get sad. I'm a woman in menopause. I have plenty of sad days. <laughs> <laughs> I can help with that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, well, you're saying you're not a, a woe is me person. When you were young, but you mentioned that right on the heels of saying, you know, I had four children when I was younger. Yeah. And so... And birth control wasn't available. No. So when you got pregnant, and I think you were like 14. Yeah. Is that around? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was 14. Been... I got pregnant the summer between my 14 and 15th birthday. I got pregnant that summer. So you, what was that like for you? The whole idea of being well, pregnant. Well, when you and, when you, you know... grow up with when you grow up in a family of parents who grew up in an age where sex was not a discussion with children, right? That was that was you know they didn't sit down and have that discussion with you. Mm-hmm. My my sexual uh, lessons from my parent was from my dad. Don't play with boys, and I'm the biggest tomboy on the block. Mm-hmm. I can make the best china ball shotguns and <laughs> and slingshots yeah. on the block. So how you gonna tell a girl don't play with boys? What's the point? Mm-hmm. You know. So I got my sexual education by doing but not knowing what I was doing mm-hmm. and I was on my third child when I asked the gynecologist how in the hell do you get pregnant really and he looked at me and laughed I said you don't see me laughing do you I said seriously mm-hmm. what's the progression how did how did because I was having a ball <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet 
find that. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's get real. Right. You know, so, so when he explained it to me, and he he pulled out some charts, and 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 there was one on the on the board, and he explained the the situation and what happens and how it happens and what's your what's your fertile days and what's your yeah. non fertile days and all that. I didn't have a kid till three years later, and that so, was a kid by choice. So, no one, so if I'd have had someone educated enough to make me aware of about my feelings as a young girl yeah. going through puberty and experiencing these feelings and thinking we are having fun. I mean, hell, I mean, you know, if someone had told me what was going on, then I would have thought differently about it. But I, yeah. I had no one to explain life experiences to me as a teenager, maybe because they were not literate enough to tell me. Yeah. And it's not, they didn't know how. And, and, and they were among many of that era. Yeah. That was not a discussion that was had in the house. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, if yeah. I hadn't gotten that lesson from my gynecologist, I could have gone on and maybe had 15 or 20 kids by now. And been, been oblivious and say, well, I don't know why it's happening. Hello. Yeah. Because I'm having fun. Yeah. You're not going to tell me sex isn't fun. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I never equated the two. And there was no literature that was given to me because I was reading, you know, way before my parents were. In fact, I helped to teach my dad and my mom to read better. They had mm-hmm. the equivalent of fourth and fifth grade, fourth and third grade. But my mother went back to night school and got, you know, up, up her to mm-hmm. about fifth or sixth grade. But, I mean, yeah. all they had was what we call mother wit. They had that survival skills of, as, as most Southerners had at that time. Well, by the time you got pregnant the second time and then third time, did anyone stop in? No, say, my dad told me when I got pregnant that summer, you're going to get married. That no was his one, way no of... No one said, hey, you need to be careful. No, or, you know, this no. Other. He no. just said, you're going to get married. So I got married. So you had, is, are your first three kids w- with your first husband? Or no, with different... no, but ironically, no. It, okay. My first husband, I had my first kid, and we were, we were de- separated. We weren't divorced. We were separated. Because, I mean, what, at 14, what I know about... Putting a marriage together, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. <laughs> so you're just a kid, really. Right. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still going through the learning process. Yeah. So my first and second kid, you know, I, after I had them two, it's like the third kid come along. I was separated and was with the guy that I was dating at the time. Mm-hmm. But once again, here is a here it is a young woman who have no clue as to how birth control should be done. And, and yeah. I didn't know about the rhythm method and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just, I was at the point where I didn't really want any more children per se. I just, I wanted to have some time to myself. I wanted to be the mom to these kids and let them grow up and have some space between them. Do you still and have a relationship so, with um, your children's fathers? No, because my, most of my, in fact, all of the fathers of my children are dead. All of them? Mm-hmm. Okay. I did. All of them. How, how do you feel about that? They did. <laughs> how do you feel about somebody being dead? We didn't have that kind of a relationship. You well, know, they, they, so. the, the kids, they, they didn't spend any time. They didn't spend any time. They didn't make any time to be with their children. They didn't financially support their children. I did. Oh, okay. And uh, when, you know, when they did see their kids, the kids were grown. So mm-hmm. whatever relationship my kid has with their father, it was that something that they initiated. I didn't. Was that difficult for you to sustain all that responsibility? Yeah. And, you know, 
emotional support for your children. I was I was being their mother. I took care of them. I yeah. did the things I needed to do to take them take care of them physically and and financially. I worked. Yeah. They never had a hungry day in their lives that did, they that that they were aware of. They did, everything was as far as they were concerned. We had a, we had a lot of money, but they never knew how I made my children's clothing. Mm-hmm. You oh, know, really? I, yeah. You know, so I I learned. <clears throat> I was I guess. It, the expression is I'm a, I'm a pretty decent survivor, mm-hmm. but I didn't I didn't have time I didn't take time to worry about what the daddy wasn't doing. I mean there was a lot of baby mama drama going on back then too. But I spent one day in a courtroom listening to, and it was because my father pushed that up, mm-hmm. so I went to court. And uh, when I was sitting in the court and I'm listening to all this other drama going on and what the judge said that the daddy got to do and so on, et cetera. And, and, and when my turn came up and the judge asked me the questions that they do ask you about the kids and all that kind of stuff, and he decided that the daddy only had to pay $5 a week, although $5 used to go a hell of a lot further than it goes now, mm-hmm. which he never paid. I wasn't spending another day in a courtroom to make a man take care of something that he knows belonged to him. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I moved on. Did you resent uh, the fathers no. for not helping out? No. How come? Well, the reason, what was that going to do? What's the point? Well, I, and I guess that's why I'm curious. <laughs> it seemed like if there were any negative feelings, you just you, I you, didn't, you didn't bother I with just, it. You I had, just, if they became like somebody I knew, yeah, they were the father of my children, but yeah. that they didn't have any time with my kids. I didn't waste my energies worrying about what they were doing and what they were not doing for my kids. I moved on. I worked and took care of my kids the way they should be taken care but of. But it seemed like you really had a... There was an imperative that you were going to take care of your kids, right. no matter no right. one else did. And yeah. I didn't, I didn't waste that energy worrying about what he wasn't doing. So, what was it like being an entertainer with kids? Well, you're an entertainer with kids. Entertainment was my job, mm-hmm. and I raised my kids. Whenever I had to go to sing, they asked me, "Well, you're going to work." And how long would you leave when you went to go do well, that? Well, most of the time it was, you know, I was working from home. I could go gig, do the gig that night and come on back home. I mean, it, yeah. it was very, not often that I had to leave and leave them for long periods of time. They were teenagers by the time I started leaving them for long periods of time. Do you, were you happy with your career? Through, like, looking back on it, were you satisfied? Did you get what you needed or wanted from well, it? it was, I was surviving, yeah. you know, compared to what? <laughs> you well, know, when, know. You, when, you, when, you, when you start out... In your working life, because, you know, we, as an adult, you've got to earn a living to take care of your family. When you start out in your working life and you're only making 50 cents an hour, mm-hmm. and from 50 cents an hour, and I thought I was making big bucks when I made my first gig, I charged them $50, and I thought I had a lot of money. Because mm-hmm. I had no one to tell me. I didn't yeah. have a, a mentor to say, okay, this is what you're worth. To me, $50 was a hell of a lot better than 50 cents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I graduated from $50 to $100 mm-hmm. and so on. But, I mean, back then, dollars were worth something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I was able to survive and feed my family quite well, you mm-hmm. know. And, and, and the situation grew because the guy who I was with, the husband that I was with at that time, Every time I would mention the word work, he'd get an asthma attack. So I figured, I said, you're going to have one more asthma attack and you're going to have it without me. So <laughs> That was Tom, Thomas? That's where mm-hmm. the Tom, name Thomas mm-hmm. comes from, right? Thomas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, if you're sick, stay sick. You're going to be sick a long time by yourself. Mm-hmm. He didn't believe me, so <laughs> I showed him better than I could tell him. What attracted, <laughs> what attracted you to him in the first place, you think? I was young. He was good looking, you know. 
typical life. <laughs> Did you meet a lot of people uh, throughout your entertainment career that you dated or, you know? No, I, I, was, I didn't, I wasn't, <laughs> for lack of a better word, no, I wasn't a hoe. <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, I didn't, I was just, I was not that kind of a person. I, I To me, my work was my work. I enjoyed okay. my work, and I, I didn't, I didn't, even though I'm, I may have attracted guys, but I wasn't attracted to that situation. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, with me and my job back in those days, I was more cautious of my surroundings mm-hmm. than anything else because, even though drugs were prevalent then, it wasn't as open as it is now. Mm-hmm. And you would be guilty by association. So I would make sure that whenever I was doing a gig and the dressing rooms had to be shared with anyone, if they showed me any inclination that they were a user, whether they used it or they smoked it, I would remove myself from the situation. And I would either dress in my car or dress in the ladies' bathroom. I just did not want to be guilty by association because I had children. And I wasn't that curious about it to want to use it. So I just removed myself from the situation. So it sounds like you were pretty professional when you approach your work, you were serious. It was about my it. job. That's how yeah. that's how I fed my family. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, it was a job, and it still is. I mean, yeah. I love it, and you know, I'm doing I'm doing better now than I did then. But back then, it was my job. I had to make whatever the amount of money I was earning at that time. Mm-hmm. I had to bring that home to take care of my family. So being in a, in a situation with people who whatever they were doing, what that, that was their thing and they wanted to do it, mm-hmm. I'm in no position to tell them not to, mm-hmm. but I can remove myself from the situation. Right. So were there a lot of situations that you had to remove yourself? Oh, yeah. yeah. That was, it was, it like was what type prevalent. Of stuff? It was, you know, they, I didn't know what it was, <laughs> but I found out and they, and they laughed at me, but hell, once I found out what it was, I wasn't about to be a part of it. I kept telling people, I smell grass burning. Well, I didn't know that's what, that's what it smelled like. Yeah. So they said, oh, fool, that's, that's, that's reefer. They, they smoking a joint. I said, okay. I removed myself from where that joint was because, mm-hmm. I mean, that was their dressing room, and I wasn't going to, well, y'all got to get out. No, we're not going to even go that way. I take myself out of the situation, and once I knew what it smelled like, fine. But now I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't around a lot of people who used the heroin Mm-hmm. in the company of me. Most heroin users back then were very private with it. They weren't open with a lot of it the way it is now. So if they did it, they did it in the privacy of their dressing room or their bedrooms or at the hotel or in their cars or something. Mm-hmm. So I never had to deal with that aspect of it, but most of the, the, the people that I dealt with were smokers. <laughs> Do you, so when I was asking about being satisfied with your career, you answered... You know that you were a survivor. Does yeah, that mean because that- you know you, you you in terms of saying being satisfied with your career when you had no mentor to tell you what to expect, mm-hmm. it became your job, and your job was to make the gig, get paid, and get home and take care of your family. Yeah. and that was my mentality at that time. So, in terms of being satisfied or dissatisfied, I was dissatisfied if I didn't have the gig. Yeah. So the satisfaction came from the fact that I was working enough to be able to take care of my so family. So you saw it more as a function of a real job. It was, it was a job, and, yes. And what about things like uh, charts and hit singles, things like that? Did, fortunately, did that you? Yeah. yeah, fortunately, in those days, most bands that were out there in the business, they learned whatever was prevalent on the radio. Okay. The only place I actually had to deal with getting charts was when I went to the Apollo Theater. And one of the local musicians who lived here wrote out my charts that I needed to go there with. 
So that was that. That's the only time I actually needed charts. But when when you were gigging with bands back in yeah. those days, whatever was on the radio, if you had a record on the radio and and you knew that they they knew that you were performing, they would ask you whose songs that you liked to sing and which songs you were going to sing. There was never a, 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 a need to do a lot of rehearsing. We maybe would have one rehearsal to find out what key we did it in. Yeah, you know, and that would be the size of it. So you, you know, I was blessed in that during those days, there was no need to to be concerned about having charts as much as it was just learning what keys you did things in. What about things? What about um, in terms of popularity of songs and things like that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, do you remember thinking throughout your career? Was that ever a benchmark for you personally? Because it sounds like you were working more because it was a job, you yeah. made the money, whether yeah. the mm-hmm. songs were popular on the radio or not, mm-hmm. that you were you were still making money and yeah. taking care of your family. Yeah. Were you conscious of like where you were in, in like the... No, I was just happy somebody wanted to hear me sing. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, sure. I worked more and it was funny because it, it, it kind of reversed itself as I got more popular in the city. When I started out in the business, I worked locally a lot. I used mm-hmm. to, well, when I say locally, I worked New Orleans. I did, you know, the over the river. I did, you know, Kenner, you know, you name it. I was mm-hmm. working the Mississippi Gulf Coast. I worked as far uh, uh, east as Florida, mm-hmm. you know, and going west. I never played Texas that much. So I didn't really travel west that much. Most yeah. of my jobs were either locally are going east, Mississippi, Alabama, and sure. sometimes in Georgia. Because the guy who was doing a lot of the book, his name Percy Stovall, he would put shows together and I would be a part of that show. Mm-hmm. And he would tour those little towns and he had a little run of cities that he would play certain times of the year. He had bookings. He knew where to book in terms of all of the uh servicemen bases, if there was an army base or a navy base or whatever in various cities, he would book the armories and we would play shows at those various armories during pay time. He knew when the soldiers got paid the whole nine yards, (laughs) so that's when he would book the shows and we got paid accordingly. So it it was never a thing where I had to be concerned about whether I was going to work. I mean, I was a popular singer at that time to sing with his band. They they enjoyed the way I worked with them. And, and the one song that I had when I came out with that one song was popular enough to keep me busy until I recorded the other ones. And then when I recorded Cry On and It's Raining, that's when I did that crossover thing. And my audience yeah. became more white as opposed to black. And I started doing a lot of fraternity parties, sorority parties here locally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and then after uh, after Camille and it, that's when the work in New Orleans kind of just went away. What happened there? Well, Camille was another hurricane, and it so it wiped out it wiped and, yeah. out all the work I had on 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 the coast of Mississippi yeah. and Florida, some spots in Florida as well. And the work here was not that great because the city was kind of recovering from. The, they didn't have a lot of the. The water damage that Mississippi had, but we had wind damages in some of the places here. So work was kind of slim and none for a while. Then that's when I made my move to California. Well, when your audience, you said, changed from being more black to more white, Mm -hmm. what was that like for you? It's just another audience. It just didn't matter. (laughs) Why do you think? So why did it change, you think? Well, (laughs) I don't know why it changed, but I know it did change. It was funny because... When uh, It's Raining came out, it was a very popular. In fact, at one point in 61, 62, and 63, at one point on the local radio stations, I had the one, two, three, and fourth top songs on the radio. 
Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And the other side of that, being a people person, it was funny because all of the the shows that I played for the white kids, I would teach them the dances that the black kids were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was a dance instructor as well as, as a singer, performer. performer. And I mean, I gather there's some friendships I, I got back then. I st- I'm still close to those same people even today. And we're all in our 60s and 70s now. We still have those friendships gone. Other than having a really great voice, what do you think made you successful or more successful than not in your life? I have no idea. <laughs> Seriously. I, I I haven't done anything specific other than just be myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was never a big party person. Mm-hmm. The few parties I went to that were where they had other named entertainers was parties that my producers felt the need to bring me to. I was never comfortable in that setting with those people because... To me, everybody seemed to be, it's me, my, and I. You know, it's mm. who I can impress. Mm-hmm. And I was never the person who was trying to make an impression on anybody because to me it was a job. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wasn't, you know, I, I think that's what probably took me longer to get the Grammy or uh, uh, the, the recognition that a lot of people felt I should have gotten a long time ago. Mm. I'm not that partying person. So I was not on the scene whenever there was a scene to be... You, you weren't glad-handing and self, no, self-promoting no, yourself No, uh, never. I mean, it was my job. I did my job. And if yeah. I didn't have to be at a party, I wasn't there. I didn't drink and smoke, so what's the point of my going to the party? So, <laughs> so when I'm asking you about success, though, you start talking about, you know, you weren't the type of person to go to the parties and stuff like because that. Because that's what your success was connected to in those days, just like it is today. Okay. Trust me. It's like it is today. It was it was it was a necessary evil, but I didn't have a manager per se who saw the need to make me go. So if I didn't have to be made to go, I you didn't go because I didn't enjoy the few parties that I had gone to. I didn't like the way the people were at the parties. Okay. It was as if though everybody was trying to impress somebody or uh, one up somebody yeah. or that sort of thing, and that's not who I am. I mean, my thing was. Make a living, make enough money to take care of your family. So do you think pay that- your bills, and that way you don't have to worry about it. So in, in terms of what that was about, I never made the connection to feel that that was something I had to do. Did that limit your success? You think in some way? Uh, looking back, hindsight is twenty twenty. It may have, it may have. But I mean, when you don't have that guidance, like I said, I didn't have a manager per se who felt the need to push me in that direction. I yeah. mean, the guy who was calling himself my manager at that time, which was Percy Stovall, his thing was keep her busy, mm-hmm. give her some gigs, put on the shows with these other acts. Because I opened for, for Solomon Burke when he had his his first major record. I opened for him. Yeah. I opened for Otis Redding when he came in the area. Uh, there was a bunch of them that I opened for when they came into the area. It was a gig to me. It was a job. Yeah. And so I didn't get all caught up in who they were and excited about who they were. When did this dawn on you that you think because you weren't promoted as well as you maybe could have been that, it, you know... When I realized that it was like, okay, so it didn't happen. It just wasn't for me. But that My thing with, is, if what, what is for me, I'm going to get. What about the Grammy then? Why do you think you were awarded the Grammy? Because it was for a live album, is that right? No. One, no? I or got nominated, nominated the first time for okay. the live album. Then the next time, uh, in fact, I had three nominations before I actually won the Grammy. But I was never, I was never the person who 
was always on the scene when everything else was going on. So basically, your your peers are who vote for you. Mm-hmm. And the ones who I knew, we got along like friends would get along. It wasn't, they, you know, I didn't have to go out of my way to make them like me and vice yeah. versa. We liked each other. We enjoyed each other's company. And we shared a lot of the same things. We were, we were survivors, per se. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in terms of the, uh, I joined the academy because... Um, you know, I felt I wanted to be a voting member. Yeah. So I joined the academy some years ago, never realizing, you know, what it what it meant or how. But I'm I'm still a member, and I still vote because I understand what it's about. But I'm still not a party person. If I'm not what? invited to go, I don't just show up at a party. What about that? And even when I'm invited, I RSVP and say, "Well, no, I'm not going to make it." But that Grammy itself, though, um, why do you think that happened? At that time, do you think that you... It was just my... It was my time. It was my time. Because other things just kind of fell in place. The the situation in general... uh, In fact, the way you... The way you worded that question and happened to me at at the Grammys when I... Got my Grammy. You go through a series, a battery of interviews. I mean, you have magazines, radio... TV, newspaper, you have a Mm -hmm. battery, and they all have their little rooms. So you're going down a string of rooms doing Mm -hmm. interviews, which I didn't mind because that was part of it. And I'm still excited and trying to get adjusted to the fact I actually won the darn thing. Uh, I was in this one room, and I don't remember if it was a magazine or a newspaper, but this lady got up and she asked me, did I feel that I was given the Grammy because of what happened to New Orleans? And the ghetto side of me was about to boil up. I was about to go off on that lady. And I said, no, I counted to 10, three or four times. And I said, and I swallowed real hard. And I said, well, if that's why they gave it to me, I hope I bring some joy and peace to my city. You strike me as as being independent. You're a strong woman. You know what you want. You You don't dwell on the negatives. And yet, in your, in your music, though, there's some sad themes. There's the blues. There's songs about men. I tell the story. You tell the story. So is <laughs> how much of that is you kind of being you and being more sensitive and allowing yourself that kind of vulnerability? Oh, well. And, and how much is it just the songwriter that no, wrote it? No, most of it is, is, is telling the story the way I feel it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I guess it's, a, <clears throat> it's the other way of having a pity party without having a pity party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and rather you, than sitting down and saying "woe is me," so I bring it out in the music. I I I put it across in the music. Um, there was a period when I was doing some recordings. In fact, I get requests for some of the songs now. Mm-hmm. There's an album that's out called "In Between Tears." Mm-hmm. We were in San Francisco, not this past weekend, but weekend before last. And that song got requested. Well, that song was recorded during a period of time when I wasn't with anyone. I I wasn't with my ex-husband. I wasn't with the boyfriend. I was just me and my kids. And there were songs like In Between Tears, We Won't Be In Your Way Anymore, some other really man-bashing types of songs. And that's where my mind was at the time. Mm -hmm. So I just put it into the songs. (laughs) So that was therapeutic for you then? That's my therapy. And do you not allow yourself to be as vulnerable in real, like in life when you're not singing? You know what well, I mean? Well, I've learned to, and this comes with maturity, trust me. I've learned to think about what it is I want to say. Because if I tell you what I want to say, I'm not going to tell you I'm sorry I said it. Mm-hmm. 
So oftentimes I don't say anything. If I can't say what I'm thinking and say it, I just won't say well, anything at that all. That sounds to me like kind of your judgment. You, your judgment's a little bit sharper. You're a little bit yeah. wiser. Yeah. But what about how you're feeling, though? Like if you're, if I, like will, to, I will let it go on stage. So you're, you, that's, you show yourself on stage. I will, I will, I will put it, I would put it out there in a song. If it's, if it's something that's on my mind that's pissing me off or I'm getting angry about something, it'll come across in a song. Because the band will say, who pissed you off before you got on stage tonight? And I said, we won't go there. Do you think that your more successful songs, I guess, like in popularity, um, came from the fact that you, you allowed yourself to be more vulnerable in the lyrics or... Um, you showed more emotion somehow in those songs. You have to ask the people who bought them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said- in all honesty, you know, I really, you, you know, as an artist doing songs, I can't judge as to why someone likes something. But I know when I'm doing a song, and if I get the story, mm-hmm. I understand the story well enough to be able to sing it and be convincing about it. It mm-hmm. may not have happened to me, but I may know someone it happened to. So I know the story well enough to be able to tell it in song to where it's believable. Do you have any advice about success? And for listeners out there who want to know if they want to be successful in anything, what would you tell them? Work at it. Don't, don't, don't always accept someone's negative response to what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. If you feel good enough about it to want to do it and it, it may require some effort, a lot of effort, then go for it. Do whatever it's necessary within the law and reason to get the job done, to get it done. Because it's easier to work at something you love than it is to work at something you have to do because you have to do it. Mm-hmm. And I've been blessed that I've managed to have gotten a job that I love to do. Not that I can't do something else because I was, you know, I can sew, I can cook, and there are other, I have other talents that I could really make a living at if I had the need. But I was blessed to be able to sing, and I love singing. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Mindset. I'm Dr. Nick Pajek. You can listen to past episodes of Mindset on the New Orleans Podcast Network. It's neworleans.com. We will also find Out to Lunch with Peter Raschuti, live from Commander's Palace. Happy Hour with Grant Morris. True to the Game with Chris True. Vietnam, the show about the New Orleans Vietnamese community with Kim Vu. And Midnight Menu Plus One with Margot Moss and the man who ate New Orleans, Ray Canada. You can keep up with Mindset on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. All the links are on the website. It's neworleans.com. If you're listening to this show on iTunes or another podcast app, Thank you for subscribing. Take a moment to rate and review us. That helps other people find us. The technical producers of Mindset are Eric Morrill and Chris Kehoe. Mindset is a production of INO Broadcasting. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.